Okay, so firstly, what is older brother lostness? Let's take a look again at the older brother from verse 25. We're told, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father has killed the felon calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, by refusing to go into the party, this older son is humiliating his father. You see, to kill the fattened calf meant that this was a once-in-a-lifetime party. It would have been the most expensive, the most lavish feast the father has ever thrown. Probably the whole community has been invited. And why? Well, because his wayward son, who was lost to the family and possibly dead, has come home. It's the greatest day of the father's life. And yet the older son humiliates his father by refusing to even attend. When his father comes out and pleads with him, the older son answers, look. And literally it's, look you. He's showing no respect at all. He's been incredibly rude to his father. And what does he say? All these years I've been slaving for you. I mean, just how offensive would that have been for the father? He's effectively calling his dad a slave driver. I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. What's he saying? You're stingy. You're a miser. You don't recognize my contribution to the family. He goes on, but when the son of yours, that's significant, isn't it? Doesn't even call him his brother. This, this product of your making, when he has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What does this older brother care about most? Why is he getting so upset? Well, because the father is wasting his inheritance. You see, the older brother's inheritance is being used to put on this lavish feast, to celebrate the younger brother's return. And so can you see that just like his younger brother, the older son loves the father's stuff more than he loves the father. That's what he really cares about. He is just as lost, just as alienated from the father's heart. And so we have not one lost son, but two. One looks very bad. He's wild and immoral. One looks very good on the surface. He's hardworking and religious, but they're both lost. They're both alienated from the father's hearts. They both want the father's stuff more than they want the father. Can you see that? The, the younger brother shows it by grabbing his inheritance and running off. The older brother shows it by trying to put his father in his debts. That's effectively what he's saying, what his attitude is. He's been obeying the Father, yeah, but not out of love. Rather, he's been obeying the Father in order to earn some kind of entitlement over the family wealth. He's effectively saying to the Father, you owe me. So two lost sons, one breaking the rules, one keeping the rules, but both lost. And did you notice the Father goes out to both of them? extends grace to both of them, welcomes them both into the feast. 
And the shocking thing is that at the, at the end of the story, the wayward younger brother is enjoying the party, but the upright, rule-keeping brother is still lost. He's still outside. The bad guy is saved. The good guy still lost. Tim Keller says, and as I said at the start of this series, I'm indebted to Tim Keller for his insights into this parable. He says, and here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what is wrong with us. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually none of the rules can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most immoral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior and Lord. I wonder if you've heard that definition of sin before, putting yourself in the place of God as your own Savior and Lord. See, people tend to think that you either follow God or you reject him. But Jesus is showing us in this parable there are two different ways to reject God. One is the younger brother, by going your own way and living as you see fit, you know, trying to be your own Lord. And the other is the way of the older brother, trying to be your own savior by being very good and obedient. Now, you may feel that I'm laboring the point here, but for many people, this is a, a new way of thinking. And according to Jesus, it's vital that we grasp it. You see, if in your heart you say, I've been really good. I come to church. I've never done those bad things that other people do. Therefore, God owes me to answer my prayers and give me a good life and take me to heaven when I die. If that's the way that you think, then Jesus may be your example. He may be your boss. He may be your inspiration, but he's not your savior. You're trying to be your own savior. At the end of the parable, it's the older brother who's still outside the party. Now, that doesn't mean that younger brother lostness is better, but I think it does mean that younger brothers often more easily see that they're lost and acknowledge their lostness. Older brothers often don't. They're blind to their own lostness because they've defined lostness in younger brother terms. And they say, well, I'm not a younger brother, so I'm not lost. And Jesus tells this story to say, there's another way to be lost. And it's actually more dangerous. We know what younger brother lostness looks like, don't we? You know, if you're in the pigsty, if you're broke and hungover and wondering if, if you've got an STD, you're a younger brother. Younger brothers are in the pigsty. Where are older brothers? Here, in church. It's not the only place you find them. There are secular older brothers as well, people who may be you know, anti-religion and yet are self-righteous and proud and superior. But you definitely find older brothers in church. On the surface, they look like the real deal. They're at church every week. They've got their name on the roster. They're hardworking. They tithe their income. They don't do drugs or smoke or drink to excess. Now, those things don't make you an older brother, but they are exactly what older brothers look like. So, secondly, how can you tell 
if you're an older brother. Tim Keller, again, has a helpful diagnostic. Four signs of an older brother heart. A sense of entitlement, uh, a motivation that's all duty and no joy, an undercurrent of anger, and an attitude of superiority. We'll go through the four quickly. Firstly, you'll have a, a sense of entitlement. Charles Spurgeon used to tell this story. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the man turned to go, the king said, Wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a, pl a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and thought to himself, wow, if that's what you get for a carrot, what about if you bring something better? So the next day, the nobleman came to the king leading a handsome black stallion. And he said to the king, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and turned to go. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain the gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. Whenever I tell that story, lots of faces go, huh? <laughs> Older brothers see their service of God as transactional. Their service is a means to an end. It's not really for God at all. They're doing it for themselves. They're, they're trying to put God in their debt, trying to earn God's favor and blessing. And so they have a sense of entitlement. That's the first sign. Secondly, a motivation that's all duty and no joy. The older brother describes his life like this. All these years I've been slaving for you. See, older brothers are very hardworking, generous, they're very good, but it's all duty. They talk a lot about what they should do. At root, it's a means to an end. They obey God to get things from God. But gospel-believing Christians obey God to get God. They obey out of joy and love and gratitude. They see their service of God as a privilege. It's something they get to do. Older brothers see God as useful. Gospel-believing Christians see God as beautiful. See, for older brothers, prayer is often dry. It's a duty to perform. It's mostly petition, asking for things, or maybe confession, but very little time for adoration, simply enjoying God, dwelling in his presence, gazing on his beauty. Now, saying all this doesn't mean that duty is wrong, always. And you do find the Bible, Bible telling you how we should live but as the Anglican prayer book says, it needs to be both. Our, our service of God is to be both duty and joy. 
So it's not wrong to talk about duty, but if your Christian life is all duty and no joy, well, it's a sign of an older brother heart. Thirdly, an undercurrent of anger. You see, if you believe in your heart that because of your goodness and rule-keeping, God owes you a good life, then you'll be constantly angry because life never goes the way you want it to. You'll think, I've done all this for you, so why is my life going right? Why, why are you allowing this bad thing to happen to me? Why is that person over there getting blessed? They don't even believe in you. Older brothers are always complaining about how things are going wrong. And they're constantly angry. They're, they're either angry at God or they're angry at themselves. If life is basically transactional and it's not going well, then either God's let me down or I've let myself down. I'm either angry at God or I'm angry at myself. Fourthly, there'll be an attitude of superiority. The older brother is full of superiority towards his younger brother, isn't he? This son of yours who's squandered your property with prostitutes. What's he saying? I would never do that. I would never do that. I'm, I am better than him. And because I'm better, I deserve better than him. You see, if your identity is rooted in your performance, if you see yourself as a basically good moral person, and that's what makes you feel good about yourself, then you'll inevitably look down on people who are immoral. See, when you look at people who are different to you and you feel superior to them, it's another sign of an older brother heart. So how did you go in the diagnostic? A sense of entitlement, a Christian life that's all, all about duty and no joy, an undercurrent of anger and complaint, an attitude of superiority. If you find those things ringing true for you, thirdly, what do you do about it? Now, there may be some here who say, you know what? That's me. I am an older brother. My heart is full of pride and anger, and I, I finally see that all my Christian service has only ever been a means to an end. I finally see it's, it's not about my good deeds earning me God's favor or a place in heaven. I'm finally ready to humble myself and receive God's grace. There might be some who say, that's me. There will be others, plenty of us, most if not all of us, who say, I have older brother tendencies. I'm older brother-ish. At least from time to time, I see these things present in my heart. We're not always defined by these things, but we slide back into them. Maybe we've had a period of joylessness in prayer, or we recognize a tendency to feel superior to others. Either way, whether you're fully defined by this older brother or you see tendencies, what do you do about it? Well, you do what we talked about last week. You repent. You repent. Last week we looked at the younger brother as an example of repentance. He came to his senses, he became conscious of his sin, and he then confessed his sin as a personal offense to his father. He took complete responsibility for what he'd done wrong. So if that's what repentance is, 
then how does it apply here? Well, if, if lostness, if sin is not just the bad things that we do, but the good things that we do with wrong motivation, then our repentance needs to be broader, deeper. Tim Keller again says, to find God, we must repent of the things we've done wrong. But if that is all you do, you may remain just an older brother. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians also repent of their self-righteousness. That's key. We must learn to repent not only of our sins, but also of our self-righteousness. Because in both, we're putting ourselves in the place of God, trying to be our own Savior and Lord. And so we need to do what the younger brother did. We need to ask God to, to wake us up and show us the older brother tendencies in our hearts. We need to take responsibility for it and then confess our self-righteousness as the personal offense that it is. I mean, just think how offensive it is when our, the attitude of our hearts is one in which we're effectively saying to God, you are a means to an end. I don't really love you. I don't really want you. I don't need you to save me. I'll save myself. I, I just want your blessings. I just want your gifts. Now, the thing that will enable us to repent is the same as what we looked at last week. It's the kindness of the Father. It's the gracious love of God. See again how the Father goes out to his proud, self-righteous, angry older son who's offended him so badly. That the father is gracious with him, isn't he? He pleads with him, we're told, verse 28. Pleads with him to come in, to enjoy his love and provision, to join the celebration. And remember the context for the story. Remember that Jesus is primarily telling this story to the religious leaders. And so as this father is pleading with his older son. It's as if Jesus is pleading with these religious leaders. He's reaching out to them. He's inviting them to come in. Think about it. These are people, these religious leaders, we know at this point in Luke's gospel, who have totally failed to recognize Jesus for who he is. Rather than honoring him as their savior and their Lord, they've insulted him and offended him. They've questioned his actions. They've accused him of being a sinner. They're plotting to take his life. And yet Jesus reaches out to them. This story would certainly have been a, a rebuke, a correction. Jesus is challenging them to recognize their lostness. But he's also reaching out to them in love. He's revealing his heart of grace and compassion. As the father says, my son, it's as if Jesus is pleading with them, my, my children, my son, won't you come back in? He's not denouncing them or condemning them. He's pleading with them, get rid of your anger, humble your pride, abandon your attempts to save yourself and receive the father's free and amazing grace. Enter the feast of salvation. Only when you see the incredible tenderness of the Lord Jesus will it cure you of your older brother heart and enable you to repent and confess. And you'll be able to do that 
be able to repent not only of your sin, but also your self-righteousness. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Do you hear what it's saying? Stop looking to your good deeds to try and earn God's favor and blessing. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. We're going to celebrate communion a bit later. And as you come forward with open hands, let that be a reminder that we contribute nothing to our salvation. We, we come to receive. It is all of grace. Finally and briefly, what are the implications of all this for us as a community? The older son doesn't want to eat with his younger brother. He doesn't want to associate with him at all, does he? He represents the religious leaders who don't want to associate with the lost and the broken, the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus invites them in. This is the Father's heart, he says. It's right to celebrate. Come and join the celebration of the lost being found. Now, I think this parable speaks to us as a community about how we relate to the lost and the broken and the poor. If we really believe the gospel, we really believe the truth of the story, then we'll be those like Jesus who reach out to the broken in our community and city. We won't look at anyone with superiority. When you see someone whose life is a bit of a mess, someone who's poor and broken, what do you see? Well, you see a reflection of yourself, don't you? A poor and broken sinner. And the only reason that you're in the Feast of Salvation is because the ultimate rich man, the Lord Jesus himself, became poor and broken for you. He joined us in our mess so we can join him and his family. See, when that reality takes root in our hearts, it will make us a community that is deeply involved in the lives of messy, broken people in the city. Not just giving our money, though that's important, but giving ourselves, our time, relationship. As Kate said earlier, yesterday we were raising money for the Mary Mags Center in the CBD. Every Saturday night they provide a meal and friendship for the homeless and vulnerable in our city. It was great to raise money for them, do give generously and buy some rolls and eggs. But wouldn't it be wonderful to get involved in that ministry? I don't know if you said this, but I'm planning to invite the directors, um, Jeremy and Olivia, to come and share a bit about that ministry and ways that we could partner with them. When you believe the gospel, when you see yourself for who you truly are, a sinner saved by sheer grace, then you'll share the heart of Jesus for the least and the last and the lost. You won't just huddle with the people who are like you, people from the same background, class, or status. Don't you dare. Not when you know the story of the prodigal God. Let's pray together. Father, we dare to pray that you would wake us up and open our eyes 
Bring us to our senses and show us the true reality of our lost state before you. Show us our sin and show us our self-righteousness. Show us the ways in which we've tried to take your place as our own Saviour and Lord. Thank you for your heart of love. Thank you that you reach out to younger brothers and you reach out to older brothers. And we pray, Father, that you would lead us in true repentance, confessing the ways that we've offended you and receiving your free grace. Make us a community that shares your heart and is deeply involved in the lives of the poor and broken in our community. Show us, show us how you're calling us to live this out. In Jesus' name, amen.